Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. In this episode, Jill and Emily compare the old world versus the new world. Emily talks about two symphonies written by Czech composer Antonin Dvorak. One was composed while he was living in his native Bohemia. The other was written while he was working here in the U.S. Jill compares Syrah from France and Australia, old world wine versus new. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Roll it, ER. Rollin'. Scores and pours. Scores Welcome. and pours. Hi, Joe Mott. Hello, Emily Reese. How are you today? Couldn't be better. Good. 80 degrees outside, mm. but mm-hmm. we are Syrahing and Dvorakin yep, inside. and Syrah. Love it. Mm-hmm. I love that, like, who's going who's gonna to find the connection before you even say that? Like, you're like, what the hell kind of connection is that? It's true. Dvorak <laughs> from, the, from Bohemia and Syrah from Australia. And from France. Oh. Which is, it's basically uh, divulging that we're going to be speaking about the new world and the old world mm-hmm. of this composer or some of his works, and then new world and old world Syrah, and how ridiculous now I think that those terms even are. But <laughs> they're going <laughs> to help us get somewhere, I promise, yep. sort of. The new versus the old. Uh, so do you think we should start with, uh, we usually start with music. Should we start with, should uh, we try to start with wine this time? Yeah, would you want to do new or old? First. Well, because we're going to start with, we're likely going to start with the symphony that Dvorak wrote in while well, his he was stayed in New York, correct? Mostly. Is that what you wanted? So, sure. So mm-hmm. let's um, let's start with New World. So Syrah is a grape that uh, I'll get into the old world of Syrah later, but it made its way to Australia via France and a few other countries, they think in about the 1830s. So it really hasn't been on the island of Australia for more than really 200 years. Yeah. Um, There are a few people they think that brought the cuttings there, but most people think it was this guy by the name of James Busby. Um, Anyway. I love that his name was Busby. (laughs) I hope that's what everyone called him his whole life. Um, the reason I chose these two, when you said you wanted to talk about Dvorak and we started to talk about his various compositions and what he composed while he was in the States, it made me think of, um, so when you go for your sommelier accreditation or if you're learning about wine, people usually start to talk about regions of the world and they separate them by old world versus new world. And old world is basically anything within Europe Maybe a little bit, you know, Caucasus, Northern Africa, et cetera. Like everywhere we think the vine hailed from and traveled to without having to really start to cross a lot of um, like large masses of water mm-hmm. or bodies of water, I should say. And so anything new world is South Africa, South America, Australia, Tasmania, et cetera. Okay. And so I've chosen um, a Shiraz slash Syrah, same grape. Uh, because it's really transparent, the difference between New World and Old World, even if it's as Old World in execution, and we'll get there in a moment, meaning people that live in a New World region, 
but they're copying old world techniques. Um, they they just always taste new world. You can almost always tell when you're tasting a, a new world wine blind just because of its ripeness, its kind of unctuous quality. Um, and so I chose a Australian Shiraz from the Yarra Valley, which is just north of Melbourne. It's basically the suburbs of Melbourne. You wow. could go and like watch the Aussie Open and drive to this winery in nice. less than, you know, uh, a couple of hours. And this guy is, he is using some old world techniques. So these are um, clay alluvial soils that he gets his Shiraz from, three different vineyards. Um, and we're tasting today, it's called uh, Jamshid is the producer, um, his Ilaj Syrah. He's using a lot of whole cluster fruit, so that attempt for aromatics and a little cooler ferment, because let's face it, it's flipping hot in Australia, so a cooler ferment is the way to go. He's picking a little bit earlier. He's using oak, they're called tono, which they're like 900-ish liter barrels. Um, old used French oak to try to mimic I mean, he doesn't want to mimic oh. a French wine because he's making wine in Australia for a reason, but he's using old world techniques to try to make the wine taste a little bit more refined, a little bit more elegant, instead of being extremely new world, which is like bombastic, big, usually fruity, in the world of Aussie Shiraz. So okay, okay. This is our Jam Sheed, Elage Syrah. Jam Sheed. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. Wow. Just smelly. And you smell like that, the constant thread you'll find, not to give it away early with <laughs> the next wine, but yeah. there's always going to be in a good Shiraz or Syrah, there's always going to be kind of this quality of like jerky, dried meat, a little bit of iron quality, but you'll taste how ripe, like when you put this on your, it's fruity. And it's just, like, very enveloping. It smells dusty to me. It's got a little volatile acidity. We've talked about that before, that little, like, nail polish remover, yeah. magic markery thing. There's the beef jerky. Beef jerky, for sure. Whoa. But do you notice how, how it coats, that coating factor a little bit, like on your tongue, sort of, after you, when once you put it, after you yeah. smell it and put it to your lips and actually swallow it, like, kind yep. of coats? yeah. You know, I, this is obviously broad brushstroke, but that's a very new world thing. It's oh, very common in new world red wines. What makes that, they that happen? Extra well, the warmer climates. I mean, okay, it's pretty warm in Australia. It is pretty warm. Granted, there's a lot of places in new world America, Chile, you know, South Africa that mimic a European climate, which is why they can grow <clears throat> Vitis vinifera. The the um, family of grapes, the genre of grapes that is conducive to great winemaking. What makes the coating of the mouth is the warmer climate. And also there was for a long time, the new world was quite hip on like extraction, like extracting. Oh yeah. Extraction. All you can from like long hang time, allow those grapes to hang until flipping Christmas, you know, or in our climate, it would be Christmas. In Australia, they're harvesting in like, you know, it would be anywhere between April and it could be as late as May, depending on the producer and what they're doing, right? Okay. Um, but so they're harvesting a lot later and they're 
the skins, the wine is in the skins for a long, long time, and they're like punching down the cap, like stirring that cap with wow. all that must to like get a lot of color. Yeah, it's, um, the color is very dark. Yeah, it's very, very dark. And so that, and not that he's necessarily doing that right, because I wanted to bring something that was delicious. I didn't want to bring like yeah shit Australian Shiraz, right? <laughs> because I could have easily done that for an easier. But this is they're they're produced in a similar way, so you'll be able to really taste the new world versus the old world because they're okay. both executed in a similar fashion. Okay. So, okay. Let's Dvorak. I'm very excited. Let's Dvorak. Uh, yeah, so Dvorak got invited to New York to teach at a conservatory there, and he spent uh, just a few years here in New York, and then he would spend his summers in Iowa. There was a community of uh, people from what now is the Czech Republic, basically, but Bohemia, that lived in Iowa in this in this town in the northwest called Spillville, and it's beautiful there. And I've been to that museum, and I think everyone, if you're ever driving across America, you have to go see where Dvorak stayed while he lived in Iowa. And also there are these ridiculously intricately carved uh, clocks that are housed in that that museum as well. It's weird. They're they're called Bealy clocks. Look that shit up. B-I-L-Y. I'm not kidding. Those clocks are insane. (laughs) So it's super worth going to Spillville, and it's a beautiful area, very hilly, lots of lush, just trees, and um, it's uh, not what you, uh, unless you're from Iowa like me, it's usually not what you think of when you think of Iowa, It's it's, uh, but it's a beautiful spot. So anyway, uh, you, what do you want to ask me? Because I can tell. I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> no, I just, I think that it's, um, the more I have read about him over the past six months that you and I have been talking about is like cello concerto. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, this guy has been, he played music ever since he was a young lad, right? Mm-hmm. He wasn't, he yeah. playing the violin like before he was 10 or some, something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. And so when he was born in 1841, when did he move to New York? It was the 1890s. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how permanent he expected it to be when when he came. Well, and I, I had heard that his, like, his salary was, he started with, like, a hefty salary, like a mm-hmm. salary that, you know, if you were a, a young kid working at, like, a Starbucks and that was your yearly pay now, that would mm-hmm. be good, you know? So yeah. he was making, like, 10 to 20 grand a year or something like that, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. for that time, back in the 1890s, 1890s that was, yeah. like, a lot of money. Yeah, he was doing all right. But then he was, like, paid, like, less and less frequently and... The, the the woman, I think, um, mm-hmm. Ms. Thurbert or whatever her name is, like yeah. she had some economic problems because of a depression yep. during that time, right? So, yep. and then he was homesick. So, it's, yep. it seems like there was like a compilation of reasons that he- Lots. Okay. Yeah. So I think it was, what, like three years that he was here. And that school folded, that conservatory folded. Um, and so you chose- you, But, oh, but yeah, he when he was here- uh, in the 1890s, um, and there were American classical composers at the time, and, you know, we we had been here for a bit. Oh, hate thinking about that, but uh, there were Americans here by then, so we had had, like, all our own folk songs, and, um, you know, we had uh, African-American folk songs, and we had uh, Native American songs and music and 
he was really influenced by a lot of that. And a lot of composers were at that time. There was like folk song fever kind of in that era. And it was uh, really common for composers to use melodies or be inspired by melodies from wherever they grew up or whatever they wanted. You know, it could have been a French composer writing with Russian folk songs for all I know. But you know what I mean? It was a thing, you know. So, uh, so yeah, he he put a a, a bunch of uh, ideas that he got from those tunes and into this uh, his ninth symphony, the New World. From the New World, it's called. Yeah. And he, when he moved here, didn't he? One what wasn't one of the main reasons. Of course, the salary was bountiful, and coming to America obviously is a mm-hmm. huge. You know, it's enticing for for a lot of people was enticing at that time period. But he came here to, I think it's quote unquote, like discover American music, right? Like he was very curious about yeah, for sure. what that meant. Sure. You know? And I think I think any composer worth his or her weight in gold or salt or whatever you want to say would would love that opportunity to like go to this sure. new quote unquote country. I'm sure no matter who had come over here they they would have been just really into it. And one of the things that Dvorak realized through that journey was that folk music around the world share there's just they share there's commonalities between stuff even if you get into the eastern culture, you know. I mean, everywhere around the world, the pentatonic scale mm-hmm. is used in folk music. And so he started to like Kind of that kind of started to sink in for him once he realized that oh, you know because by the 1890s there were plenty of generations of people who had never set foot in Europe that yeah. grew up here you know and and so to have all of this music just available to him to go out and discover in here yeah I'm sure that anybody would have jumped at that chance yeah, yeah because the the pentatonic scale isn't isn't it they say that a lot of ancient civilizations that that developed independently of each other, you know, Scotland, America, Transcaucasia, et cetera, use a lot of the pentatonic scale in their mm-hmm. music, right, or in their folk tunes. So, yeah. you know, the Ninth Symphony, isn't it chock full of that? Yeah, pretty pretty much, yeah. Yes, let's do it, let's do it. <laughs> All right, well, I think we should listen to the first movement um, and probably we'll just focus on the first movement because it is it is a, you know, four-movement symphony and it's wonderful and by the way it is one of the most popular symphonies in the world like it's performed all the time uh and it's great it's great um neil armstrong brought it to the moon yes he did Uh, that's a real fact it's it is and uh part of i think part of its popularity comes uh from the fact that it's very easy to listen to and also the second movement, the slow movement, is this really famous slow song that became so famous that for a while people were confused thinking it was an actual folk song that Dvorak orchestrated. No, he just it's just he just wrote it. You know, it's not <laughs> like and then and then a student of his 
uh, put words to it. And so that's where some of the confusion came in. And so now there's like choral arrangements that you can hear oh, this okay. everywhere, everywhere. listen to the first movement. This is Alan Gilbert. This is a new recording, and so I was really interested to hear it. This is just from a couple years ago, 2017, um, released by the New York Philharmonic, uh, led by Alan Gilbert, and I thought it sounded really cool. So here's Dvorak, Symphony Number 9. big tease for the melody. And do you mind explaining to people what the pentatonic scale is? Pentatonic. Do you mind explaining to people what that is? Uh, sure. There are a lot of varieties of it, so that's kind of tough. But mostly it just means it's a five-note scale instead of a seven-note scale, which is what we're accustomed to here in the West. So the secondary theme, we're about to hit the secondary theme, and this one is very pentatonic-y. So beautiful. I love it. So good. Both the wine. Yes. And the movement. The wine is so freaking fruity. So grapey. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. 
And just wait, because you said jerky. Just wait till the next one. Really? It's like okay. diving into a bag of links. <laughs> if, you, nice. if you're from the Midwest, you know Jack Link's jerky. Kind of sure. like the back of your hand. Yes. Um, so what... I guess what's what's interesting too, and I, I wrote this in my notes to mention because I think it's pretty important um, that when he said about discovering um, American music, Michael Beckerman wrote a lot about. I think he wrote at least two books about um, Dvorak, but he wrote that um, that. Dvorak said something along the lines of that Native and African-American music should be the foundations for growth of American music and that through these roots, Americans could encounter a national style, mm -hmm. which is really um, inspiring. Well, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Elaborate. Well, <laughs> Elaborate. <laughs> well, I mean, that's exactly what happened. So Dvorak, this was 1893, as we've said a couple different times. So Aaron Copeland isn't born yet. He, he's not born till 1900 is when Cop Copeland, one of the easiest birth and death dates, 1900 to 1990. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, Bernstein was younger than him. So Bernstein was born in like 1914 or something like somewhere around there, right around the time the Rite of Spring is premiered, I think, is, okay. when, is when Bernstein is born. So those two are the biggest names in American music in the 20th century. You can toss, uh, there are, Dozens and dozens and dozens of other really great American composers of classical music. I'm not talking about jazz. I'm not talking, you know. But were they looking, was, pardon the interruption, Please. were they looking to, was Aaron Copeland looking to Native American sounds or rhythms? And especially when we think about the pentatonic scale and how that could, you know, when those... You know, when, when we think of these folk songs independently, these tunes kind of independently forming from one another, but in a similar structure like the pentatonic scale, what's, what's fascinating about that is then are those rhythms and are those octaves like occurring in nature? You know, we talked about... Yeah, pentatonic. Remote. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Of course, right? So that's... Yeah. And I wonder how many... You know, Copeland obviously knew of Rameau and was, you know, people were studying those things. But I wondered, I just, I don't think a lot of people, folks know that out there, which is, I think it's fascinating. <clears throat> yeah, no, that is, it is fascinating. There's this really great, I mean, can't you say there's a really great TED Talk about everything nowadays? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> it's a TED Talk about, anyway, um, but Bobby McFerrin did one. Bobby McFerrin is a smart, smart man. And a killer musician. And he did one on the pentatonic scale just to show how universal it was without even telling the audience that he was going to talk about that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then he got him to sing it without even, you know, because yeah. everybody knows it. Like it, yeah. it just doesn't matter. It's just, it's innate, almost innate in us yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Um, another, another quote to read um, that Vorjak said verbatim, and I'm going to, it seems like it was all included in one um, paragraph, but I'm just going to paraphrase a couple sentences. He said, I quote, I am convinced that the future music of this country must be founded on what are called Negro melodies. These beautiful and varied themes are the product of the soil. Written, and I think that too, the product of the soil, I just thought that that was cool he said that because when we talk about wine, we often say, if it weren't for the soil, 
we we wouldn't be here in wine. You yeah. know, there's a climate and there's a hand and there's, you know, vessels mm-hmm. around to put put it in, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. But if it weren't for a well-draining soil that was heat retentive right. or that was cooling or that was this color or that color. I mean, so when I read soil in the midst of a Dvorak quote, I was like, yep. hashtag yes. <laughs> so yeah. super cool. Yeah, super I just cool I stuff. just can imagine like in eighteen ninety three in New York, there was probably just music everywhere, you know, by then. All kinds of cool stuff was happening. Like jazz was starting to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. How cool is that? Emily's eyes are as big around as half dollars right now. Big. <laughs> They're big. Yeah. So well, let's try the old let's try wine. The other one. I want to so, try the old wine. So this uh, this next wine hails from where many people would consider the spiritual home of Syrah. Um, there are there were plenty of theories that you know the the grape the Syrah grape had been here since the Roman time in the Rhone Valley, so we're southeastern France at this point. Um, usually, granite soils are the favored soils in this area for Syrah. But people would say since the Roman times, people had said that it made its way over there from the village of Shiraz in Persia, and there were all these different. It's it's we know that Shiraz slash Syrah has been in the Rhone. It's been documented since about 500 BCE, and Good that's Lord. as that's as far back as we can get. So all the cute stuff about the Roman Empire and legions bringing it and all that stuff, probably. Wasn't wasn't the case, um, and it also is native to, so it wasn't brought from anywhere. Oh, um, that's it was a happenstance crossing. Basically, back in the day, you would have mutant grapes all over the place, right? Like grapes would fall. How terrifying! <laughs> <laughs> yes and no, yes and no, but very favorable, right? Because in the end, it's like survival of the fittest. So yes, if you take a seedling from a grape, say Chardonnay and you take a seed and plant it, that will not grow Chardonnay, right? You can never, it's sort of like saying, Emily, you're going to have a baby, and that baby's going to be Emily Reese. That can't happen, right? Chardonnay is going to give birth to something else. But, so when... Not another Chardonnay? So not another Chardonnay, no. So Shiraz is a crossing of two grapes. They think, uh, I have to, I should check my, uh, my history, but I think they think it's a, half of it is like a parent a grape in the Savoie and northeastern or central eastern France close to Switzerland and then half is of the of Rhone origin and so you know it just it took a liking to granite it took a liking to the hills and the terraced sites that were are now some of the most esteemed and expensive vineyard lands in the world and so what I brought is a wine from those soils. There is some granite, but there's also some clay. Uh, there's some galets, uh, which are like big uh, canto rodados, or like round, big stones, um, river stones uh, is, is part of the soil. But this is a producer that is uh, known for being one of the um, best values of Syrah in all of the Rhone Valley. Uh, they're called Domaine Graminon. And uh, Michelle and her son, Maxime, um, are making some of the most age-worthy and beautiful uh, Syrah that is available to us here in the United States from the Rhone. Um, They're using very little sulfur. Uh, They're harvesting and farming everything organically and biodynamically 
all native yeast. The other wine we tasted is all native yeast as well, not filtering, um, aging it in. It's fermenting in concrete, and then it's aged in stainless and I believe some old wood for seven months and change. But now that we've said all that gibberish and techie things, yeah. what's what makes this world or this wine, we call this an old world wine because it's from Europe. And when we think of old world wines, most sommeliers and, and people in the wine industry would argue that this these are the textbook examples. Like they call it old world for a reason. People copy the old world techniques because this is where the spiritual home is of, of a said grape, of its techniques. And so what we're tasting is the blueprint for what, you know, a lot of people are trying to capture when they say, oh, I really want to go plant Syrah somewhere. They likely had a wine just like this that they mm -hmm. fell in love with, woke up the next morning, was were still thinking about it. Um, so, chin chin. Cheers. This is Barney. Yep. So Barnyardy for sure. It's definitely more like rustic smelling, not as shiny. Yeah. You know, this is yeah. sort of the, this is classic like Renaissance art. The former wine is sort of like Picasso. modern art. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Just still wonderful. Warhol. Sure. <laughs> you notice the fruit is not as overt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's no, for sure. definitely more kind of intertwined with the barnyard quality, with mm -hmm. the bacon, yes. bacon fatty, meaty. Iron, you taste that iron quality. Mm -hmm. And the whole palate is like more chunky. Yeah. Like it's not so... It made the tip of my tongue tingle right away. Yes. What's that about? Uh, I, I couldn't tell you. Interesting. This is a 2013, so it's not a young wine. If this had just been bottled... You know, maybe there, or if it was really warm out or something, we could say there's a re-fermentation that would give a little tingle. But so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do this, okay? I'm pouring um, my little bit of my wine into Emily's glass so that we can taste them side by side. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to re-pour the first wine, mm -hmm. the Jamsheed Shiraz, into my glass. Yeah. Now taste this and just... Feel the difference in just the fruit. I mean, even the smell itself is insanely sharp. I mean, sharp, not uh, not uh, that stronger. It's so much stronger. Yes, yeah. for sure. Wow. Like people would say, yeah. they're both dry reds. Yeah. But people would go, wow, the Graminon's so dry. And then this is sort of like it's a little bit more forgiving. Mm -hmm. The jam sheet is a little bit more forgiving. Mm -hmm. And definitely um, fruitier. Wait, especially the very end. It's just grape. And so this is a classic example of old world versus new world. Like if you're mm -hmm. t in a wine tasting and you have to start, you know, in your mind categorizing and putting things into boxes, mm -hmm. the first thing you do is old world, new world. And you get that. And then you start going further down the, the rat hole. Um, and so that's the big difference. And and I guess I think I'll wait till after we're done talking about Symphony Number no. 8 to start going okay. into why I think it's really important to know these things, but then why it's also good to know how irrelevant it is like at the same <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, so what old world and which is interesting too when we just listened to that previous number nine. Yeah. It's uh I've heard it I've seen it a couple different ways. So how is it technically it's called 
From the New World. From the New World. So Symphony Number no. Nine, which which uh, he added after he wrote it. I mean, he he kind of realized he was like, yeah, that's a fitting that's a fitting description. But it was it was such a successful premiere too, which is cool. You know, he got ovations after each movement. We often forget that that's how classical music used to be. It used to be totally cool to clap in between movements. You know, if you like something, clap. Let them know. You know. <laughs> yes. And so he, yeah. So that's cool. Um, and it's it's uh, interesting to me because I didn't I didn't know that that um, segregation was made that far back in the 1890s of like calling it the new world in various parts of art. Oh, like I, yeah. I'd seen it around and used, but I didn't know that it was used as you know in music, yeah. in wine, mm-hmm. in literature. When we read you know literature from that time, you know that's mm-hmm. pretty obvious that it's used, but I didn't know that it was also used in naming symphonies. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about symphony number eight. Well, a few years before that, obviously, before he wrote symphony number nine, and Dvorak was such a good, uh, he wrote great symphonies. He wrote great orchestral music. He wrote a bunch of tone poems, which we've talked about before on this program. This program. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, and he he just wrote great orchestra music. He wrote great chamber music too. I mean, he was just he was fantastic, and um, I he's well worth spending some time on. Um, there's so many things to say, even about what we heard in the Ninth Symphony. But uh, in the Eighth Symphony, um, uh, what's fun about that symphony is that I'm sure before he even could imagine that his next symphony would be written in the United States. And premiered there with an American orchestra. Uh, I'm I'm sure he didn't think of those things when he was writing his Eighth Symphony at his crib in Bohemia, uh, working with Bohemian folk music and writing that into his Eighth. And so uh, that that's just a really fun little connection um, for them to happen back to back like that. And uh, you know, Bohemian. Eastern, let's just say Eastern European music sounds different than the rest of Europe. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Just like Spanish music sounds different from the rest of Europe, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so it's it's fun to hear that in his Eighth Symphony. And, and you hear it in a lot of his music, too, very deliberately. He wrote Slavonic dances. He wrote many of those... various forms for orchestra, for piano, for piano and violin and all kinds of uh, different ways that he incorporated the music of his home into, you know, his his published works. Um, and this is just a really neat example of it. It's a really fun symphony that also, um, we were talking before we hit record about how uh, Dvorak kind of pays tribute to Beethoven a bit in his ninth symphony by paying tribute to Beethoven's ninth. So that there's some fun stuff in there that way. Um, but also in the Eighth Symphony, there's kind of some Beethoven-esque tricks in there as well because it's it's sort of a pastoral symphony where in Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, he 
orchestrates this big thunderstorm, which Mm -hmm. he wasn't the first to do that, but it just happens to be a famous example of it. And in his, in Dvorak's Eighth Symphony, he does the same thing. And he does it in his second movement, and and we're going to listen to just a little bit of that one so that you can hear these really this really cool bohemian melody played on clarinets because clarinets are awesome. Wait, before we before we listen to this, can mm-hmm. you talk about the cor anglais, please? Oh, the English horn, as oh, it's more often so called. Cool. An English horn is a oboe that's bigger and has a bend in it. And so has, if you don't know what an oboe is like, you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> and it also has like this, it looks like a quail, or not a quail egg, it looks like an ostrich egg at the bottom, right? Like it's oh, a large yeah, the little ball at the bottom. Ball at the end. Yeah. And it's made out of the same wood, right, yeah, as an for oboe, sure. but yeah, it's, it's super yeah, cool. Sure. And I, I was listening to the Coranglais today. I found some like solos online. Yes. And I was listening it's to one of them. My favorites. It's such a cool instrument. So if yeah. you want to geek out to like mm-hmm. just 10 minutes of a really beautiful instrument. Coranglay. Coranglay. AKA English horn. Anybody yep. wants to send me a t shirt that just has a Coranglay and nothing else on it, <laughs> feel free. Yep, yep. Coranglay is amazing and he uses it really well. Dvorak also, much like uh, you'll hear me say about Beethoven a lot, uh, and and many other composers, but uh, uh, Dvorak, just brilliant with the wind instruments, you know, I mean, just so good with with all the woodwinds and and brass. I think he's a little better with woodwinds than brass, personally, but uh, but there's just some great, like his wind serenade is one of the best like small, it's it's like a I can't remember if it's an octet or however many instruments he wrote it for, but it's it it's it's brilliant, you know, it's just brilliant. So we're we're comparing number eight that oh, yeah. that is inspired by Bohemian folk songs to mm-hmm. number nine yep. that is inspired by New World rhythms, sounds, techniques. Yes. Uh, so we'll be comparing those two, just like we're comparing New World flavor profiles yep. for Shiraz slash yep. Syrah. And the adagio. So I I have it that it's. E flat major that goes to C minor, then that goes to C major. Is mm-hmm. that is that common that an adagio and a second movement changes that often? Or it is was a- probably in the eight. <clears throat> <laughs> puberty sneaking up on me here. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was pretty common then. You know, I mean, so the key of the eighth symphony is G major, I believe. And this was created in two and a half months. He was fast. Like, that's ridiculous. He's fast. I mean, you know, like, uh, obviously, you know, Haydn could put that to shame, but not quite as grand of a scope, right, as we're talking. Okay. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, Dvorak 8 in G major, 
does not start in G major. It starts in G minor. I guess it's not E flat isn't really a relative of that. But if you're speaking of E flat major to C minor, is that what you said? E flat major to C minor? It's C major. Yep. Okay. So, but E flat major to C minor, that's the same key signature. Both of those keys have three flats. Okay. So we call them relatives. Okay. So it's really easy to move between relative major and minor. Got you. And then if you go from E flat or major to C minor, mm. so you, but then C major is a really easy relative. It's a parallel. Yeah. It's the parallel major. So transitionally speaking, or uh, we would say um, modulating, in terms of modulating through keys, that's all contrapuntally makes perfect sense. I like them both quite a bit for very different reasons. Um, it would depend, I think, on my mood. Um, I obviously love the fruitiness of the new one, um, but I like the uh, personality of the old one. Jock 8. So beautiful. It is. It's beautiful. And and I seriously can see like him chilling at, at some summer home, you know, in the summer, just experiencing a thunderstorm, which we didn't get to, but we will put in, you know, obviously. Just super lovely, and the clarinet melody with the like interplay between major three and minor three. So like going back and forth in really short amount of time between a major and minor tonality. That's so Eastern European, yo. And this is going to be a stretch for sure. But is there? Okay, so there's neither one of these symphonies are better than the other, right? Correct. Or more complex. But it's for me. I, I feel like the. And it's 
The same with wine. You can't say an old world wine just because it's the blueprint is more complex than a new world wine. Mm-hmm. And I'll get to that in a, in a moment. I'll elaborate on that. But when I, when I think of just how varied, just we, we obviously touched, you know, scratch the surface. Mm-hmm. But the symphony number eight seems like there's more breadth, right? There's more, we're using more scale changes in one movement, perhaps. We're, you know, diving all over in terms of just available notes, right? And when we, when, when we petatonic, we pentatonic, we... <laughs> such a hard word for you. I don't know. It's like <laughs> <laughs> when we pentatonic, we're like in a very natural scope. But it's almost yeah. like when we think of, well, nature provides us one thing and everybody wants McDonald's, right? Like everybody yeah. wants bigger and bolder and whatever. Mm-hmm. But so the, the pentatonic is, is somewhat limited. With the pentatonic scale, new world, that it is somewhat more, you can tell it's newer in its development, even though it's every bit as good. Wine number one that we tasted, we started with the new world wine, is every bit as good as the old world wine. You can just tell it's using something for inspiration. Mm-hmm. When we listen to the old world versus, we'll say the quote unquote, symphony number eight old world mm-hmm. versus the new world. Yeah. It's more complex just in its range of possibilities. It's it's not how necessarily what it sounds like. It's mm-hmm. what it's using as its building blocks. I would say that for those who knew of Dvorak, he was, he was an established composer, obviously, by the time he came to the U.S., or he wouldn't have been invited to come here in the first place, right? So people knew his music. They loved his music. And if they heard, when they heard the Ninth Symphony... Yes, it sounded very new to them, for sure, for sure. And so, and it just not not in any sort of sense that it's less highly regarded, no, not in course. the least, but yeah. that it just is. There's it's some sort of yeah, different. He's and, experimenting with different ideas, with different musical ideas. Of course, yeah, no, of course, and that's you know that's that's what nationalism was all about in the first place, right? Was exploring. And nationalism was well underway in the 1890s. It just, you know, Grieg is doing his thing. Sibelius is doing his thing. Uh, you know, Debussy is doing his thing. There's Ravel and Rimsky-Korsakov and Mussorgsky and, uh, you know, Russia, Russian nationalism, French nationalism. Uh, it's all over the place. And and all of that was new sounds in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't writing these like they weren't. Well, they certainly were, but so I'm not going to take that out. But uh, anyway, yeah, does that answer at all? It what does. You're talking about it okay. does. And do you, will you permit me on a what is always okay? So my my issue right now in the world of wine is I I get that we use old world and new world to easily distinguish between like borders, right? Mm-hmm. If I say old world, everybody's going to eliminate half of the winemaking world and go to Europe or Northern Africa or whatever, you know, Transcaucasia. Sure. So I get that that helps. But to talk, to teach a class and to separate new and old world flavors, I, I can see if we're going really conventional, 
meaning if we don't care how things are farmed, if we're using kind of somewhat old school ideas in the age of when, you know, cultivated and selected yeasts were preferred to, you know, packeted yeast to toss them in for fermentation to guide your ferment, you know, temperature control was starting to become more of a thing. I, I get that that was a time to say old world and new world because that could pretty much be true. You could say new world flavors and everybody would know what that meant, like 14 plus percent alcohol extraction, usually new oak of some sort, batonage, like stirring leaves for creaminess. You know, you could like you check the boxes of all these things that new and old world meant. Mm-hmm. And yet nowadays you have so you know, I, I, Spain is a place that's very near and dear to my heart, and there's so much terrible winemaking happening there, modern stainless steel silos, you know, millions of hectoliters coming out a year that is all packeted yeast and filtered and gross, right? So, yeah. um, Is and, that faster? Is it faster to course. do that kind of stuff? Absolutely, okay. yeah. yep. Right. And so, in, and that's why, you know, your wine is two euros a bottle and, you know, great. <laughs> but at the flip side, right now in the new world, there are so many people that are embracing a certain type of sustainable farming and to let ambient yeast do a slower, more risky road to, for development, but then you have more unique and developed flavors. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you, that's just a – so I, I really think that nowadays using old and new world, if you're going to talk about very conventional – winemaking and you're trying to just basically speak of the wine world of yore, (laughs) like five to 10 years ago, 10 years ago, we'll say. Great. Teach classes like that. But you can't really, nowadays you can't, if you're talking about anybody, anything with some relevancy in terms of importance and intrinsic nature, it's like, don't use those terms because they're, they don't matter anymore other than to just get us to a nation. Done. Mic drop. (laughs) <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say about that. <laughs> is that like is that like awesome. bad? Is that enough? Is that no. do I need to elaborate on anything? No. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. New world old old world. New world, old world. Joe Mott. Emily Reese. Thank you for listening to episode seven of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We're on Instagram at scores and pours, all one word. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. And I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Incorporated. (laughs) 